0: takes care of that, so excuse the delay. And it's nice to be with you again. Good morning again. It's, it's so nice to, to drive over here this morning and think of everyone who I was going to see. So it really is good to see you all. And I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about um, a trip I took not too long ago. There's a place in Arizona There it is. It's 300 miles north of Phoenix. 300 miles to the northwest. It's called Ganado. And Ganado is right up there in that that four-corner place of Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. And during my time of traveling on the road and visiting with folks, I wandered into Ganado. Now, this is a nation... It's, on the, it's in the Apache County. It's the Navajo Nation. It has a long history. Going back to the Spanish conquistadors and their travel through there in what they referred to as New Spain, Ganado was on the silver trail where the Spanish came and they mined the great resources of silver to fund their exploration and their occupation. And Ganado did a pretty good job. The Navajo folk did a pretty good job of not getting partially involved in too much of what was going on. They worked together. But then there came a time when they could no longer do that. And so they became part of the group in what was called the Navajo Wars, fighting against the oppression and the occupation, in particular of the Spanish, um, but also of the Americans. And somewhere in the 1860s, Ganado actually became fully occupied, but they seemed to make that work until along the way um, at Fort Defiance, the US government outpost that had taken control or was in charge, forced them onto that long walk as they refer to it, where they were relocated. So they are a relocated people, they are an oppressed people, and yet a very resourceful people. Today in Ganado, they are are probably one of the most successful Navajo nations uh, that comes out of the reservation status based on their agriculture and their raising of livestock. But they still struggle greatly, as do most um, indigenous folks on their native lands trying to maintain their cultures and their traditions Among many other things, their unemployment is below 20%, I mean, it's above 20%, and they deal with a lot of social and economic struggles. So it's a tough place, but a beautiful place. And I had the privilege of going to Ganado um, as I was wandering on my itinerant work in Arizona. I would just drive from one place to another, and I was in Phoenix, and I said, What is this Presbyterian church up in Ganado? Should I go there? And someone looked at me and says, you're going to go to Ganada? And that made me want to go even more. So you know, when you tell me don't go someplace or you're really going to, I start driving. And when I got there, what I discovered was that in 1901, Presbyterian women created a mission there. And they built a hospital. And they opened a church. And they believed in the women who were the native women of the Navajo Nation that they could become nurses and doctors. Doctors was a little extreme at that time, but the nursing, it became a nursing school. And there is still today great respect and gratitude to Presbyterians, especially Presbyterian women, for the belief they had in the people of Ganado in the midst of what others were doing in terms of dismissing those folks. So I wandered into this church and the pastor worship had already completed. I was coming from a place called Chinle, which was even further north than there. And I had scrambled from that service down to the one in Ganado. And there I met Custer Lowe. Custer Lowe is this tall, stately, indigenous American of the Navajo Nation, who was the ruling elder, or CLP, we called it at the time, a commissioned lay pastor, because they couldn't get a minister, uh, teaching elder to go there. And Custer had this incredible history. I mean, he was just this warm, engaging presence. And it turns out that he was on the Secret Service during the Nixon administration he was Nixon's Secret Service agent, one of them. He was with that with our former president. He was with him on the plane when he went and he resigned. And then he went and he served Gerald Ford afterwards. And following his time serving in the Secret Service of the United States, he came back to Canado, to the Navajo Nation. And he started out in Arizona from there as a state trooper. I mean, I'm looking at this guy I'm saying, really? So he was a state trooper for a while, and then he decided that the best way he could serve was by becoming a commissioned ruling elder, or a commissioned lay pastor. So he had been serving this congregation for a while, and you, I have to tell you, I met them in the fellowship hall, and there was Custer sitting at the end of the table with this couple, and for me, in a, at a glance, there was everything I ever thought I knew about a pastor. There was just something about Custer Lowe. So we started talking, and I said, Custer, this is an amazing story you have. I've heard about you, I've heard about this state trooper, and then he says, oh, there's more, and he told me about the other stuff. I said, well, how are you doing here? And he said, you know, I'm doing really well, right? He said, I've had some physical challenges, I said, really? I said, you you look great. What's going on? He said, well, he says, I have this thing. He said, it's a neurological thing. They don't exactly know what it is. But without warning, it's like a switch goes off. And my brain shuts down, and I collapse. All my bodily functions, the brain just stops the signal to the rest of my body, and down I go. And I'm... As you, I can see you looking at me, that's the way I was looking at him, like, whoa. He says, but, you know, they don't know what it is, and they're not sure how to prevent it, and I'm never really sure when it's going to happen, and they tell me that one day it will probably happen and I won't have to worry anymore because I'll be finished here. He says, but I told my congregation, I said, listen, I told them all about it. I said, if I'm standing here in the pulpit and suddenly that happens and the good Lord comes to take me, he says, I want you to know how happy I am. He says, I want you to know that of all the things I have ever done in my entire life, that this is what I love the most and you the most and that I want you to be happy for me. Yeah, I didn't know what to say next. And so we chatted a while longer. And when I was up in Chinle that morning, I had been given a cross made out of spikes by a visiting group on their missionary travels. They had handed them out to everybody in the congregation, and they had one for me, which I thought was very sweet. And I wanted to give Custer something. I wanted to somehow show him that what he had gave to me in our time together, I needed to somehow respond. I just needed to. And so I said, oh, I have this. And I told him the story and I put it around his neck. So we, we said goodbye and actually I, I check in now and then. I, I actually called Custer just yesterday and left a message to see how he's doing. Um, but I left the sanctuary and I walked out of that that old sanctuary built in the early 1900s through an old red church door and a a scrubby desert, because it is the high desert, 6,000 feet up, a scrubby desert out into the field where there was this sports building of some kind and a plaque that commemorated Presbyterian women for the mission. I sat down and I wept. I just wept and wept. And I had no idea why I was weeping, all of this coming out. And I thought of that story this morning, or during the week as I thought of coming here this morning, about the title of the sermon that I've I've noodled with forever in a lot of ways. There's an expression that says, well, it is what it is. That's it. And that has always struck me as so dismissive so nihilistic and hopeless, so there's nothing we can do about it. And my experience has been that there is so much more than what it is. It's just that I don't see it right away. And then I get the gift of seeing it through others, which is where it comes from most of the time. And that morning with Custer, there was so much more than what I thought there was. And, and, it, and it, it, it just embraced me in a way that, that squeezed out those tears and it, it was amazing. I love the high desert. And with the desert and with the story this morning about Jacob out there wrestling with the angel out in the desert there, you know, Jacob ended up, I'm sure Jacob thought, oh my gosh, this is it. Esau's on the other side of that river there, and when I get there, he's angry at me. He's go, oh, he, I don't know what he's going to do to me. I don't know if he's going to, to greet me or greet me with violence. And, and, and so he was struggling with his fear. And there's a book that um, I have two books to read from this congregation, one that Joanna gave me and one that Jim gave me and that I am going to read by next week. But in the book that Joanna gave me by John Philip Newell, it's called The Rebirthing of God. In it, Newell talks about this struggle that Jacob had with the angel, and this is what he says. He says, Jacob's struggle in the desert is about being a bearer of light. So I thought, well, you know, Custer was a bearer of light, especially in that high desert, that liminal place where it's different there. And I thought, hmm, So I read on, and he says, to be bearers of light, which is pure gift and not of our own doing, means that we are made to shine. But when we truly shine, and when we work for the shining of every child, woman, man, and creature, we find that sometimes we create discomfort in the people around us, and the holders of powers especially, in our communities and our world. Now, I couldn't help think a little bit about how there's a great deal of effort going on right now in some of the dialogue to be bearers of darkness and gloom and despair. And how any approach from the bearers of light is met with this, "Ah, what are you, a Pollyanna? What are you, just optimistic? Don't you see what's going on? It, and I thought about that. And then I remembered I shouldn't be so surprised. Should we? Isn't that what in fact brought a Palestinian governor to crucify Jesus during his time? That is a bearer of light, the discomfort that he brought, the challenges that he brought, the justice and love that he brought in his preachings and teachings and practice and life to every man, woman, and child? brought discomfort to the powerful and the elite? Newell says this afterwards. He says, the angel of death who blessed Jacob at the beginning of his exile and showed him in a dream the ladder that connects heaven and earth was the same angel who led him back to Esau after long years of separation. On the night before he met his brother, Jacob struggles with that fear. He wrestles through the night with an angel that was guiding him. It is even said that he was wounded in this struggle and for the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. The angel was guiding him. The angel was guiding Custer. I felt the angel guiding me and I felt myself going, no, no, I can't do that. And then I remembered, I can or I can try. And this bearers of light brings me again back to the gospel reading this morning of the widow. She was not going to let her light be dimmed by any one place or thing that the justice she sought, the persistence that she used to keep it going, was not gonna be tamped down by anybody. Now, a widow during this period of time in which Jesus was talking, would have been without any authority or power in many ways by the law, but she didn't have any of that. Her light shone in such a way that eventually she was able to change the power through the discomfort nonetheless of the one who held that power to get the justice she sought. This light that is in all of us, that is in this room, that shines around us and in our hearts, we know it. It shines clearly at times. For me, it's about remembering it. I have that built-in forgetter that forgets. I have this light within me. For each one of us, that light calls us to do different things. For each one of us, that light puts us in situations where if we're looking through the lens of that spirit and God's love in us, our actions are always so much more clear to see. And that's the challenge. To see the actions that we are called to see. And the way we are called to serve and be with one another because of the light, the miracle we spoke of over the summer that is in us. And Jesus says this in, in, in some of the readings that I just pulled out briefly. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8, Paul says, Therefore do not be partakers with those in the darkness, for you once were darkness, but now you are light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, despite what anybody says. And to win that argument requires that we take action. Knocking on a door, talking to a neighbor, caring for a loved one, figuring out that little more of something we can do. And then Jesus says this in John chapter 12, 36. For a while longer, the light will be among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he or she is going. So while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. We have the light. It is ours. It is the gift that God has given us, that there is in Christ, brings to us, that all the things we see and know about God in our lives remind us of. And on the day when we move into wherever that next place is, we will be in the light in a way that we don't even have to worry about thinking of it. It is more than what we think it is. And I pray that folks continue to remember that and not let anyone tell them otherwise. I pray and I know that this congregation, which knows this deep in your heart, so I am speaking to the choir and the choir, I pray that you will continue to carry that for others to see because it is so sorely needed. Let no one tell you it is what it is. Amen.